Be seated. It's a longer passage today. But turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 14. We're looking at the whole of the chapter of Jeremiah 14 and we'll begin moving into chapter 15 because as you'll see it's all connected. So Jeremiah chapter 14 and verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns. And her gates languish. Her people lament on the ground, and the cry of Jerusalem goes up. Her nobles send their servants for water. They come to the cisterns. They find no water. They return with their vessels empty. They are ashamed and confounded and cover their heads. Because of the ground that is dismayed, since there is no rain on the land, the farmers are ashamed. They cover their heads. Even the doe in the field forsakes her newborn fawn because there is no grass. The wild donkeys stand on the bare heights. They pant for air like jackals. Their eyes fail because there is no vegetation. Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. O you, hope of Israel, its Savior in time of trouble, why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Thus says the Lord concerning this people. They have loved to wonder thus. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. The Lord said to me, Do not pray for the welfare of this people. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. And though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. The Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say, sword and famine shall not come upon this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and sword, with none to bury them, them, their wives, their sons, and their daughters. For I will pour out their evil upon them. You shall say to them this word, Let my eyes run down with tears night and day, and let them not cease, for the virgin daughter of my people is shattered with a great wound, with a very grievous blow. If I go out into the field, behold, those pierced by the sword, and if I enter the city, behold, the diseases of famine, for both prophet and priest ply their trade through the land and have no knowledge. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Does your soul loathe Zion? Why have you struck us down so that there is no healing for us? We looked for peace, but no good came. For a time of healing, but behold, terror. 
We acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord, our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. Then the Lord said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. And when they ask you, where shall we go? You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, those who are for pestilence to pestilence and those who are for the sword to the sword, those who are for famine to famine and those who are for captivity to captivity. I will appoint over them four kinds of destroyers, declares the Lord, the sword to kill, the dogs to tear, and the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. And I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem, or who will grieve for you? Who will turn aside to ask about your welfare? You have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep going backward, so I have stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you. I am weary of relenting. I have winnowed them with a winnowing fork in the gates of the land. I have bereaved them. I have destroyed my people. They did not turn from their ways. I have made their widows more in number than the sand of the seas. I have brought against the mothers of young men a destroyer at noonday. I have made anguish and terror fall upon them suddenly. She who bore seven was grown, has grown feeble. She has fainted away. Her son went down while it was yet day. She has been ashamed and disgraced. And the rest of them I will give to the sword before their enemies, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you desirous to hear your word. And yet at times your word is heavy and hard to hear. Sometimes it's hard to understand, and yet you have promised that through your Spirit you would teach us all things. So we ask, Holy Spirit, would you instruct our hearts and open our eyes today? Show us wonderful things from your Word. We commit our time to you and ask that you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. As a kid, I always looked forward to the arrival of the National Geographic magazine in the mail. You guys remember magazines? We used to get those uh, in the mail. Don't so much anymore. We didn't get a lot of magazines, but at least when I was young, we got National Geographic, and I was always excited. I don't know that I read very much of the magazine, but the pictures, that was what I was all about. I was all about the pictures. And anything that was underwater, anything to do with sharks or whales, I was fascinated by the the far-off lands, those were always interesting to me, things that I had never seen or experienced before. But one of the types of imagery that, that I, I still think of, I, I remember seeing that they would feature from time to time, was that of places affected by famine and drought. Because it, it showed uh, things I'd never seen before. You know, just entire landscapes that were marred by, you know, just the sun raining down, cracked earth, dry land, no water, no vegetation. What I found most startling about the pictures wasn't the land, though, it was the people that lived in those places because you could see the hopelessness on their faces, the desperation, 
not just for themselves, but for their children. And they were often depicted, you know, with children. That, that captured my mind as a young person. When I studied American history in school, I remember learning about the Dust Bowl experience in the Midwestern prairies during the 1930s and how, you know, during the, the Great Depression, it just amplified what was such a great loss um, through this famine in the middle of our country and the pictures that we've seen both still and, and, and the stuff that was captured in documentary format that we have to look at today. You see on the faces of the people the desperation that they have for themselves and for their families. Famine is something that besides National Geographic magazines and documentaries, we really don't comprehend. Our greatest struggle today is probably waiting for the Amazon order to arrive in one day. You know, the whole idea of, of looking at earth that won't produce and wondering how we're going to feed our family or have water to drink is far from our imaginations. Yet in these famines, it was more than just the dark clouds raining dust for days on end. It was lack of basic necessity, lack of food and water that led to often disease. And when you have these things stacked up, as you see in this passage, it's often death and grief that follows. That's what we see foretold in Jeremiah 14. A drought is coming. A drought like nothing that many of us have ever experienced. And this would be only the beginning. This drought was separate from that which would come with war. He also foretells that with the war, with the invading army of Babylon, would come famine. But this is a different event. This is a separate event likely coming before Babylon ever invaded, a kind of warning, a natural disaster to get the attention of the people that they might repent. You're familiar with Peter's words in his second letter, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We often stop there, but the next verse says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Yes, the Lord is patient. Yes, He is desirous that all should repent. But the end is coming. The day of judgment will arrive. And this was the message given to Judah. Not only would this drought come, but as I mentioned before, war would create famine with it as well. And then the message moves forward. We see pestilence. We see the sword, famine again, captivity. All descriptions of Judah's destiny in judgment. And yet in the middle of this passage, there are two psalm-like prayers of confession. Prayers that included words of repentance, as well as questions about who God is and why this is happening. Why, God, are you like a stranger in the land rather than our friend and our helper? Why, God, are you unengaged if you are a warrior in our strong tower who promised to defend us? If we are your precious daughter... Why are we experiencing the life of an, as an abandoned orphan? These are all paraphrases of what the, the prayer prays. And then Yahweh answers a clear answer. They have loved to wonder thus. Send them out of my sight. Let them go. In other words, the answer, and I'll tell you the answer at the beginning. You don't have to wait till the end. The answer to the question, why have you rejected us, O Lord? is, I haven't rejected you, you have rejected me. That is the answer. And this act of discipline is therefore just. But it's just as well 
for a purpose. Because God not only leads them uh, out of their sin and misery in, the capti- in their own captivity, yes, he leads them through exile to repent that they might turn, but then it also becomes a testimony to future generations. Those who were in exile would read these writings that Baruch wrote down for Jeremiah. They would read this account and know their history so that they might not walk as their parents walked. And we read these words today so that we might not walk as they walked. The Westminster Confession of Faith states, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God often leaves his own children. I always feel like I need to specify this. Often leaves with a V, not leads. He doesn't lead us. He leaves us for a time to manifold temptations and to the corruption of their own hearts. He does this to chastise them for their past sins, to humble them by making them aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, and then to raise them to a closer, more constant dependence upon himself for their support, to make them more watchful against all future occasions for sinning, and to fulfill various other just and holy purposes. God leaves us for a time in our sin. He turns us over in our sin to reap what it is that we want. You who are parents, Halloween time, kids want to eat the whole bag of candy, you say, no, no, you don't want to eat the whole bag of candy. But the kid says, I really do. And maybe they wear you down. Not that any of you would do this, but maybe some parent somewhere one time said, okay, fine, eat the whole bag of candy. And then patted their back for hours on end as they vomited it all up through the night. This is the message. God's saying, I'm turning you over. You want this? You, you want to walk in this debauchery and this wickedness? You want to pursue what you think sounds pleasurable? I've warned you. I've told you what's good. But you won't listen. You keep walking backward. And so I'm going to turn you over to receive what it is that you think that you want. So this message then becomes a testimony not only for this time, in Jeremiah's time, but for the, land, the people in the, in the land of exile in the years to follow, and certainly for us as well today. This message is for you and for me. And so beginning in verse 1, we see the message of the drought. The Lord speaks to Jeremiah, a drought is coming. We're not told when this drought is, and there is various opinion as to when this fell. We won't get into that. I believe it precedes the uh, invasion of Babylon, and I think a number of pointers are here in the text to provide for that argument. It seems that it was another warning, a natural disaster. What is it about natural disasters? Well, natural disasters are a leveling field because everyone experiences them. Rich and poor alike experience this. And we see this in the text, that even the wealthy could not find water. Note that the city cries out. Her gates languish. The cry of Jerusalem goes up. We see this kind of personification of the city and the nation of Judah. The nobles unable to get even the most basic necessities. And we recognize that when those who are the wealthiest and the most powerful in society are unable to get the most basic necessities, that that society is at rock bottom. The farmers are dismayed and without hope. Everyone here is without hope. Even the animal kingdom. We see the doe who would normally take her fawn and, 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 and 
keep it in a wooded area for protection here, abandon the baby deer out into the wilderness, presumably to die. Donkeys, this desert variety, they were accustomed to the wilderness-like conditions. They're looking for water. They find no water. They find no vegetation. Their sight fails them for lack of nourishment, verse 6. And then at verse 7, after this clear description of what is to come, we see this, this shift where Jeremiah is no longer talking about the drought, but he begins this prayer of the people. And if it didn't strike you as strange, it did me. Like, you know, you're reading along in Jeremiah. We've kind of gotten accustomed to what the, the ebb and flow is of Jeremiah, and we're not expecting a prayer like this. Why? Because it sounds genuine. It sounds like true confession, true repentance. And because of that, I don't think it's the people praying. So who is it? Well, I would mention there's this one, and then there's another one, which we'll look at in verses 19 to 22. They're very similar. They sound a lot like the Psalms. Some suggest that this represents the faithful, the remnant among Judah, those who remained uh, believing in the Lord, or possibly those who repented during the exile, that this was somehow a later event. Christopher Wright suggests God in his mercy could distinguish between the collective national folly that was leading to the inevitable disaster through which his judgment would be outpoured and the personal hearts of individuals in the nation. And if any of them spoke the words in genuine contrition and repentance, then we may assume that God met them with grace and forgiveness and that their eternal destiny was not sealed by the immediate destiny of their nation and city. I would not disagree with that in any way. That is certainly... It certainly would have been true, but we're given no indication that this is what was happening. It could have happened. That could be what the case is. I just think it's more compelling that this was Jeremiah praying, praying as an example before the people to show them how they should have been praying, much like the psalmist. Remember, Jeremiah was a prophet. His ministry was public. And even the psalms, while they might have been written in the quiet of night, were introduced into the public worship, the public liturgy. They were used through, since, since their writing. We use them even to this day. One of the hymns that we sang this morning, if you ever notice there's you know, the author down at the bottom, many of the hymns that we sing are just the psalms put to music. I think it was Psalm 76 this morning or Psalm... I always, yeah. 51? Okay. One of the psalms put to music. We still do that today. And I believe this is what Jeremiah is doing here. In psalm-like fashion, he is showing them how they should have prayed. He is showing them what true contrition should look like, not on the basis of any good within, but how does he appeal? He bases it on the character of God. This is what true confession looks like. And yet, in the midst of this lament and confession and sign of contrition, there's also the tough questions. And we recognize these from the Psalms, don't we? The psalmist is never timid to ask the tough questions or state the tough things that, that, that he wrestles with. And so here we see the questions, why are you like a stranger in the land? Why are you like a man confused? Why are you a warrior who won't fight? And then again, in psalm-like fashion, at the end, we see the psalmist return back to the character of the Lord. But you, O Lord, are in the midst of us. So to this then... To this prayer that Jeremiah prays before the people, the Lord responds and says, But they have loved to wonder thus, verse 10. They've not restrained their ways. They've not turned back toward him. 
and so he will punish their sin. This, too, I think was likely delivered just as the prayer was in front of the people. Jeremiah is, is saying these words out loud that the people might hear them, bringing the message of God to them. In verse 11, there's another shift. Now the Lord is speaking directly to Jeremiah, saying to him for the third time that we've seen now, do not pray for the welfare of this people. As we've said already, the Lord is patient, that all should reach repentance, but the day of the Lord will come. There is an end coming. You can't continue on in sin expecting mercy forever. He has said to Judah and he has said to us, now is the time to repent and turn away from wickedness. Even their attempts to appease God, and we do often do the same things, their, their attempts were through burnt offerings and grain offerings. Verse 12, the Lord says, I won't accept them. I won't receive them because he knows how they have acted. He then says, I will consume them by the sword, famine and pestilence, the lethal trio. We're going to see this 15 times in the book of Jeremiah. It's used in other Old Testament passages as well. You probably recognize it. The sword, famine and pestilence. Sword often brings destruction, which often leads to famine, which often brings disease. They follow in that order often. And then Jeremiah comes before the Lord, and he kind of, you almost imagine a courtroom scene here in verse 13. He offers some kind of rebuttal or defense. He says, in essence, but the people are confused. They're deceived by these other prophets who tell them that they won't die or won't see the sword or famine or pestilence. They aren't taking the message you've given me seriously because of these false prophets. So Jeremiah is saying, you know, you've sent me to do a job and I can't get any traction with these people. They won't listen. And so in verse 14, the Lord answers back, they prophesy lies. I did not send them. And then he elaborates on what he means in the three ways that they're doing this. They're prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Just like the trio of judgment, sword, pestilence, and famine. Now he lines up three uh, reasons that the false prophets are doing what they do. They're not having true visions. They're making them up. They're literally creating them. They practice methods of divination designed to trick. Think sleight of hand, but done in the name of the Lord. Um, tricks to fool people. They literally concoct their own messages in their own minds to deceive people. Imagine here daydreaming that they have nothing better to do than to sit around and daydream what they can say to the Lord is the message they've received. This is why we have to be careful today when anyone says, God told me. Be especially careful if someone comes to you and says, God told me to tell you what to do. I'm not kidding. <laughs> uh, be very careful. God is God. He can do whatever He wants. I'm not trying to put Him in a box. But God has chosen to communicate through his word. He has revealed himself. He's not hidden himself. He has revealed himself through his word. And he's revealed himself in person through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so as the people of God, we can say, God said, anytime we quote his word. We can say to each other, God said, be thankful in all things. Because he did. God said, hide his word in your heart that you might not sin against him. God said, do not be afraid, I've overcome the world. We can encourage each other with these words. But if someone tells you, God said you should marry this person, God said you should go to this school, or God said you should leave your spouse, 
all of which I've heard people testify to being told, run. They're dangerous. This is exactly the lies and deceptions that the false prophets practiced. They came up with their own ideas. In verse 17, the language moves from judgment to sorrow. We've seen this a number of times already. We'll continue to see this in the weeping prophet's message. The message given by God to Jeremiah. So this is revealing the heart of Yahweh as we read in verse 17. Let my eyes run down with tears night and day and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people is shattered with a great wound with a very grievous blow. You see the grief in the language. Lalaman writes, this verse demonstrates the love God still has for his people. In his anger, he seems distant, but it is with pain that he punishes his beloved children. God grieves to do this. Then Jeremiah adds that he sees that this is going to affect the whole land. The prophets and the priests ply their trade through the land, and they have no knowledge. It's going to spread like a virus, verse 18. And then in 19 to 22, we see the second confession, like the first one in verses 7 to 9, this psalm-like example where Jeremiah prays to, to show the people, this is where you are to find your help. And he prays in verse 22, we set our hope on you for you do all these things. This is where the object of their faith should have been, but they would not listen. So the Lord responds, and this is why we're looking into chapter 15 today. You'll see the connection. The Lord responds to all of this by saying, they have rejected me. It's another rebuke. It's directed to Jeremiah to deliver this message that the Lord's patience will come to an end because they will not listen. He will not listen. He says, even if Moses or Samuel interceded for these people, he kind of holds up the two most well-known interceders in the history of Israel, right? Both of these, both Moses and Samuel, interceded for the people of God in their own day. But here, with an ironic twist, God says to Jeremiah to tell the people, let them go. It's the same phrase that Moses said to Pharaoh. But it's ironic here because instead of being released from slavery in Egypt, they're now being released to go into their own slavery by their own choice in their own sin. It's the same message we read in Romans 1. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. We don't even realize it, because sin deludes us. It makes us insane that our wishes and our desires and our passions and our lusts would actually lead us into chains, which then become our judgment. This is what was happening to Judah. Now, the judgment for Judah is going to end with the invasion of Babylon, and that's where he points him now that this, this famine, this drought that's come, this is only a warning because Babylon is coming. And we see it here portrayed by four categories in verse 2, pestilence, sword, famine, and captivity, pointing to the exile. All four are part of or the result of this coming invasion. And then the image becomes clearer by the four destroyers, the sword to kill, dogs to tear, the birds to devour, and the beast to destroy. And then in verse 4, I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. You remember Manasseh, we've talked about him before. He was probably the most wicked king of Judah, most people think. 
He took the throne at the age of 12 and he ruled longer than any other king. His father was Hezekiah, who was a good and righteous king. He ruled righteously. And this is often one of those questions where we scratch our heads. Lord, why, why do the righteous kings end up having wicked sons? Manasseh was wicked. He did a, a number of things. I won't list them all. Probably one of the most heart-wrenching was that he sacrificed his own child in pagan worship. But the point of the message is not to put the blame of Manasseh upon the people of Judah, but rather to show the pattern, the pattern of sin that goes back at this point over a hundred years. Nothing has changed. Huey comments, care must be taken not to interpret passages like this to mean that one person's or one generation or one person is punished for the sins of another. We may be affected, this is true, sins to the third and fourth generation as we read in the law this morning, we may be affected by the sins of others, but each one is held individually responsible for his or her own sins. Jeremiah says this in chapter 31, everyone shall die for his own iniquity. In the final words of this passage, the Lord expresses, I am weary of relenting. And he says this because it is you who have rejected me. That's the answer. Why have you rejected us, Lord? No, it is you who have rejected me. Why are you a stranger in the land, Lord? Why are you like a confused man? Why are you not our friend? It's because you have rejected me, he says. You have walked backward. You have walked away. And for this, he will winnow them like wheat. Another image that we've seen because they did not turn from their ways. Even the mother uh, who has seven sons, the picture of completeness, right? In this, in this time in history, to have seven sons would have meant that you would have been well taken care of, well into your old age. How is she treated? Well, she's to be left alone, feeble, shamed, and disgraced. It says her griefs will be like the sands of the seashore, right? It's a, another ironic twist of, of the, the covenant given to Abraham, that the blessing would be like the, his children would be like the sands of the seashore. Here it's turned upside down. We might find it strange to think that God would ever become weary to relent. How can the one who is omnipotent, how can the one who says that his mercy is unending, his love knows no bounds, how could he become weary and not relent? Well, it's not because he gets tired, but because judgment must come. As we read in 2 Peter, yes, the Lord is patient, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. There is an end. In Luke's gospel, John the Baptist is preparing the way for the Lord Jesus, and he says of him, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Many Christians, and I would say non-Christians as well, make the mistake of pitting the Old Testament portrayal of God as the God of judgment and the New Testament portrayal of God as the God of mercy and love and, 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 and tolerance and, and so forth. But the New Testament is not timid about the coming judgment of God. It's clear that Jesus has been appointed the one who will judge in the end. We see this in this passage of John the Baptist. We saw this throughout the book of Revelation, as we worked our way through that. It's clear throughout the Gospels. It's clear throughout the epistles. So just as Jeremiah warned the people over and over to repent, Jesus now 
presents the same message. For example, in Luke's Gospel, there were those who asked questions about the deaths of some people who apparently died unjustly at the hand of Pilate. And so they, they, they seemingly were questioning whether it was their fault that they died. And Jesus makes it clear, and then he adds in another kind of natural disaster to make the point even clearer that this was not, this was not the reason that they died but for their own sins. He says, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The message of God is consistent throughout redemptive history in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Repent and believe because we're all guilty. Yes, he is patient that all should have the opportunity to repent, but the end is coming. And so if you have never put your trust in Christ, know that there is an end that's coming. He will not tarry forever. Do not wait. Do not think that you have tomorrow. James answers this kind of thinking, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we shall go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade, make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The message is clear. All of our lives are fading fast. Today is the day of repentance. For you who do believe, don't, don't, don't treat God's mercy God's patience with disdain. Your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price. Live as unto Him, moment by moment, in faith and repentance. Your life is a gift, just as your salvation is a gift, that you may live as unto the Lord. So may we heed the words of Romans, where it says, Wake from sleep. Wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We have been saved by grace to live by grace and holiness, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. We could say recreated in Christ Jesus, born again in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Jesus is ours. May we sing in our hearts, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Let's pray. Lord, your forgiveness is beyond our comprehension. It's almost too good to be true. In fact, in our minds, it really is. It's beyond our understanding. How could you, the holy God and creator, ever condescend to become like us yet without sin? to die in our place, to take upon yourself and forgive us of our sin. How could could that be? How could you not require of us some, some sacrifice, 
some, some ounce of righteousness or good work, how can it all fall upon you? It, it, it's beyond our comprehension. And so I pray for that person today who thinks that it is too good to be true, that they have never put their trust in you, that you would open the eyes of their heart, that they might see that it is true. And that you've made it clear that this is what you have done for your own glory, for your name's sake, to put your glory on display. You have taken our sin upon yourself. You have fixed the problem yourself. And you have given as a free gift in Jesus Christ to us His righteousness that we might now stand before you. I pray that for the unbeliever. Lord, I pray for us who are believers that that truth would cement itself in our hearts because we doubt. We doubt every day. We think somehow we have to earn it. We think somehow we have to pay our, pay, pay our dues, get it right. We don't want to in our heart of hearts really rest on Jesus alone. We want to somehow do our part. Lord, would you forgive us of our own self-righteousness? And would you cement in our hearts the assurance of the gospel that Jesus paid it all? All. That we might now walk in freedom. Freedom to live as unto you. Freedom to be free not only from sin and only, not only from the fear of death, but freedom to live rightly, pleasing you. Would you do that work in our hearts? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.